Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring their insights to you. Okay, before we begin, Tim, we just celebrated Valentine's Day last Sunday, February 14th. Yeah. It is a day to celebrate love and affection, and because... We are such kind, considerate, and loving people. We released a special love episode that day with Logan Yuri. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> Wasn't that nice? Yeah, it was so nice. It was a cool episode and because we are such kind and considerate and loving people. Do you hear the syrup dripping, by the way? <laughs> uh, we are bringing you this special episode on relationships, specifically our relationships with robots. What? <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Love and robots? This sounds like a bad, uh, you know, band name. Okay, (laughs) Okay, so maybe not really love, but I am talking about the relationship that humans have with robots and robotic interfaces. Okay, so you're talking about our conversation with uh, Bertram Molly, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Talk me through this. Okay, so Bertram is a cognitive psychologist and linguist who teaches at Brown University, and his research caught our attention because of his work on robots and the way humans relate to them. Okay, I'm listening. Okay, so so Bertram's research is helping us understand the way robots will need to interact with humans as they become more common in our lives. For example, we like to... We like the way Siri and Alexa talk to us through our devices when their language is more human and less robotic. And his research indicates that humans tend to attribute things to robots that are really people, relationship sorts of things, like moral capacity and emotions. And we do that more when robots appear more human. Okay, I think I get it. So human relationships with robots could be made to be better or more effective in the job that we're going to ask them to do if the robots have more human faces or bodies. So so robot human love needs to have a more human interfacing <laughs> robot. Is that it? I, I guess that's actually correct. Yes. <laughs> but the cool thing about this is that, and this might be one of your favorite aspects of the whole discussion, by the way, is that our relationship with robots will depend on context. What? Are you, are, you, are you trying to tell me that context matters? Oh man, double bonus bundle on that. Yeah, I figured that might make you smile. Oh, I think I think it makes you smile actually. So <laughs> All right. And though listeners might feel this discussion with Bertram is a little science fictiony uh, about the distant future, keep in mind that we already talk to a robot like Siri or Alexa on a regular basis and we're moving in the direction of creating relationships with our robots. So we might as well embrace them. Yeah. Get that, get oh, that embrace, oh, oh. That, the love robot thing. That oh, was a good yeah. pun, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. So that's, that is correct. But <laughs> let's maybe just, uh, let me just send you a happy belated Valentine's Day to you, Kurt. We'll just keep <laughs> <All> moving. <laughs> All right. right back at you. And with that, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold shot of ex machina and enjoy our conversation with Bertram Molly. Bertram Male, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Good, good. So uh, let's get started with a speed round. So I wanted to find out if you prefer coffee or tea. Definitely coffee. 
Definitely coffee. I like that. All right. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite rock star or sports star? Oh, whoa. That, yeah. Rock star, I think. (laughs) Because at least they could sing during dinner, whereas, you know, the football player would just throw me off. And and do you have a, do you have a person in mind if you had to pick somebody to to go to dinner with that was in that uh, genre? Oh, wow. It would be one of the four Radiohead heads. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, tough, tough one to decide. Any one of them who has time. I, I just heard, total aside here, but I just heard there was a mixtape that somebody had from Radiohead that was before they were called Radiohead that they were auctioning off and they were thinking they're going to get like $20,000 for uh, Whoa. three three songs that uh, yeah, they were probably not called. very good, right? Because I'm sure. they really, they started okay, but man, they improved and expanded. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a little too old actually for rock music, but it turns out that Radiohead appears to attract people of, of my age. My wife and I were in Boston at the Radiohead concert and we looked around and thought, whoa, these are like our equals. That is weird. <laughs> of course, all the youngsters were standing right at the stage, right, where we wouldn't uh, survive. Uh, but it was fantastic. It was just unbelievable what they did. Wonderful. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. We're, we're, we are, we have lost the idea of a speed round, I think here, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talk with the scientists. They can't say yes or no. Everything has to be commented on and, and qualified. So yeah. Exactly. Well, here's a potentially yes, no question. Uh, would you prefer to travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Fixed. Yeah, definitely fixed. Now, as, as long as I can fix it. So okay. <laughs> I need to be the one who does the planning. So that implies that you might be traveling with a travel partner that might not necessarily agree with all of your decisions. Oh, that's why I've been married for more than 25 years, because my wife lets me do these things. Not for everything. <laughs> Brilliant. Travel, travel, definitely. She says, honey, you, you do well. I just put myself into your hands. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I'm nice. a little envious. That's great. Oh. <laughs> All right, last question here. Which do you think would be perceived as more human-like? A robot that dances or a robot with a more human face but couldn't move? Well, see, this is a tough one because there's actually possible empirical data to collect. Obviously, yeah. we've seen the, the recent uh, Boston Dynamics dancing robot. I think faces do more to our... Uh, actual deeper emotional psychological responses. I think we're very impressed by the dancing robot. Yeah. But very soon the lack of facial expressions and these slight weird, not quite right movements tell you, oh, that's a pretty good toy. But if a robot really has facial expressions, boy, that's, uh, it can both be freaky, but it can also be very convincing. So yeah, I'll go with the face. Okay. Well, you've done a lot of work, right, on on that uh, intersection of robots and humans, in particular, how we perceive robots and and that. So, what what is it that attracted you to to that work? Well, I've always been a science fiction fan, and robots in mm. particular fascinated me. And it was more coincidental that I had the opportunity to actually do some research on it. Uh, program director from the Office of Naval Research read my work, contacted me, and basically wanted to give me an opportunity to write a proposal for doing some research. 
And he already had in mind two other people that he wanted to put together with me and make sure that we do some work together on robots that have possible moral capacities. Mm. And then very soon, as you think about robots, cognitive, intellectual, moral capacities, you immediately have to ask yourself, well, what does that robot look like? If yeah. it's a convincing social partner that you know is appropriate in its interactions with us, should it also look like us? Or would we be even more impressed if a more machine-looking robot actually had higher capacity levels than we thought it would. So this immediately led to some interesting research questions. And there's a fair amount of work already, but we've sort of pushed this a little further and tried to figure out what inferences do people make merely from looking at a picture of a robot. Mm -hmm. And it turns out we can actually predict very well what kinds of mental capacities people think this robot has merely from its physical features. Yeah, yeah so it's kind of, oh, go ahead, Tim. But tell us more about that. Tell us more about how, how we quickly make those projections. So what we did was take more than 200 robots of which we had pictures that are reasonably comparable. Robots that at least have been built once or produced. Uh, so everything that you can find in the world. In the meantime, we've like already 270. And we actually turned this into a database. It's called the ABOT database, A-B-O-T. And what we asked participants in the first round to do is just look at pictures and mark what features they see. Eyes, eyebrows, skin, apparel, clothes, feet, legs, everything that you could imagine that could possibly be human-like. And then we asked the second group of people to look at any one of those pictures, and of course we had a lot of people, and give us 20 answers to questions like, do you think this uh, robot has norms or values? Do you think that robot has feelings? Do you think this robot falls asleep, is hungry? So a lot of things about affect, about morality, about social perceptions, about its learning, communication, movement abilities. So we had two groups of people, one that just rated all the features, appearance features, the other group that rated all the mental capacities, mm. and then we predicted one data set from the other. So we could say, the more eyes or facial features you have, the more people make inferences about affect emotions and moral capacities. And the more limb-like structures and movement capacity it has, the more inferences people make about learning communication and acting in the world. And people didn't know that we were looking at appearance and, and mental capacities. Different groups of people matched up merely because of the way the robots looked. And that was remarkable. So this is actually right now, we're almost ready to submit this to some journals. And that really was pretty amazing. It wasn't just, yeah, the more human-like, the more capacities, but specific features of the robot's appearance had specific impact on what people thought was in that robot's mind. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you did some other research that kind of brought that down into... A, a number of different things with some of your students down to four main characteristics, right? It was facial, it was, um, uh, for, forgive me, I've forgotten, um, it was body components and various yes. different others. Exactly. So, so that's, yeah, that's that first part of the project. Basically, th there are 
Originally, we had four, but it seems to boil down to three. And mm -hmm. that's uh, basically everything about body and movement and manipulation in the world, everything about face and facial features. And then the third one is fascinating. It really has no use in the world, but it makes us think it looks human, like skin and eyebrows and eyelashes and, and clothing and apparel. And that last bit makes the superhuman-like, the androids, you know, closest to what we think uh, humans look like. But it's interesting, the facial features have probably the greatest power. They make us suddenly think about affect and, and moral capacities. And that's also the justification for my first reluctant, but then actually confident answer. It's the face that's going to make a difference. <laughs> we got to the end of the speed round. <laughs> Full circle. There you well, go. I, I'm curious about, you know, uh, we, we talked about uh, moral affect. Do you think that we should be thinking about the moral programming? I mean, if humans are going to build robots, right? Robots are, assuming that robots are not building themselves. Not yet. That humans are going to build the robots, then there is the potential to have uh, uh, moral aspects to these. This is a discussion that comes up a lot. Uh, the MIT lab uh, talking about uh, the construction of automated driving vehicles, yeah. right? Yeah. The decision-making that, that might need to go on. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the motivations for this original research uh, on sort of moral robots to say, look, if you have a robot that interacts with humans in some kind of social domains, whether it's in the hospital, in the nursing home, uh, hey, the military has, you know, plans to have robots maybe embedded in platoons. Uh, all of that requires that we really think deeply about how we would relate to these. If they are really like my pretty crappy computer, then I will not have any social interactions that are meaningful. I mean, I might project some things onto it, but very soon it's going to be frustrating. But if this robot, you know, uh, welcomes you in the hospital, uh, takes your questions, says, "Well, uh, your your spouse is still in the in the waiting room. Uh, can you like hold on here for five minutes? I'm going to check." So you have a conversation. You accept something like a request to wait. All of those things, it doesn't even have to be super sophisticated. They are the small norms of human interaction, politeness, respect, autonomy, understanding. And if a robot is in our social space and sphere, we expect that it acts appropriately, that it follows our norms. Now, of course, there are no universal norms that you build a robot for the hospital and then ship it into all hospitals in the world. Norms are very local. They're very context-specific. They're community-specific. And that makes it hard to do sort of the general AI approach. Let's just build it the best way possible, and then we'll distribute it. Those robots would have to probably learn the norms of the community that they're in, the role that they occupy, the kinds of people that they interact with. That's a huge challenge, but I think it would be very difficult to have robots among us and acceptable and tolerable without robots showing those capacities. Yeah, it's an interesting aspect. If we're going to embed, as you said, robots in our everyday lives like it is, the acceptance of that has to be part of our human you know, uh, history in various different pieces. We, we won't accept them as part of that, or at least not in the manner that I think 
you're talking about, right? The, this idea of if we have a robot that may be working at a hospital that is intaking people in and, and be doing that, they're going to have to be able to, to take some of those human-esque aspects of our, of our being and, and take that forward. What other implications are there? I mean, do, do you see other implications of, of how these robots are going to be interacting with us and what are some of those other important aspects that might um, impede or enhance some of those interactions? Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, as just as much as we are looking at a machine and if it has human appearance, we immediately have expectations about its mind and its capacities. As it interacts with us, we have expectations about its appropriateness, its norm abidance, its maybe at least small moral capacities. But also when we interact with it, communicate it, we almost immediately form relationships, like very thin, small, even if it's just the formal relationship of the one who asks a question and the one who answers, a brief exchange, but maybe a little more, somebody who might give me advice, somebody maybe who helps me understand what just happened with my spouse in the uh, hospital. And I'm very confused. Maybe before even the physicians and nurses can come, maybe that robot could give me a little bit of a relief of confusion and anxiety I have. All of those things, even initial steps, it will be unavoidable that we have relationships, that we have some at least basic affective responses of liking, not liking, feeling distant, feeling closer, and that means we have to be very careful about these robots creating attachments, creating false relationships, creating false expectations. There are some pretty wild um, developments in technology of artificial agents, virtual agents, that even in Japan sometimes are meant, designed to take relationship roles, yeah. where a lot of lonely, younger uh overworked Japanese men have no time for partners for actual relationships. They built these devices that basically are virtual girlfriends. And that was a bit shocking to me. Uh, there is uh, quite a bit on YouTube uh, that can give you the creeps when you look at that. <laughs> at the same time, you recognize, wow, these men really have a need for relationships. So you would say, well, maybe let's not go to the robot and virtual agent solution right away. Let's see whether we can actually facilitate human relationships. And this is the struggle with all this technology and robots in particular. Are we taking these just as shortcuts as and as easy solutions? Yeah, nobody really wants to take care of our parents, our aging uh, you know, relatives. So let's just get robots in place. Mm. That's not really what we should do. We should use robots and technology to fill gaps that no human can and wants to and, and is capable or gets paid to fill. But where we can, we should have humans. We should have relationships and we should try harder if it's not working well. So I think that that's, that's a, a, a big problem with robots that they may invite this quick and easy solution attitude, which I think is really wrong. So you bring up this idea of relationships. I think about uh, internet memes uh, that are, you know, promoting robots in human-like form. Then there's movies, Her, where yeah. Scarlett Johansson becomes the the object of love, you know, from a, you know, from a, a guy who needs a relationship. Ex Machina, where yeah. you know there are 
create physical creations of of these um, the, of these robots that are extremely human like. Uh, where where are we on the uh, sci-fi is 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 still leading the the discussion and the imagination, or are the people who are designing robots are they leading the imaginations of the filmmakers and the and the, the meme developers? No, I think writers and filmmakers are light years ahead of reality. <laughs> okay. you actually talk with a roboticist, they just roll their eyes. You can barely get this thing stay upright and uh, walk over unknown terrain, carry things that it's never seen before, have a conversation with a human that it wasn't trained to uh, deal with. It's so difficult. I mean, it gives you so much respect and awe and admiration for what we have become, human evolution, biological, cultural evolution. And with all our flaws and limitations, it's unbelievable what our brain, body, mind produce. So replicating that, duplicating that, even in small steps is hugely difficult. But what I like about science fiction is that it forces us to ask the questions. What would we want? How would yeah. we feel about this? What are the unintended consequences? And to be honest, I'm tired of all the bad robot movies, but <laughs> they do give us a warning. Let's not be over-optimistic about this. Let's not have illusions about this. This can really go wrong if we are not paying attention. You know, like Tay, this, this uh, very primitive learning uh, agent a few years ago that some geeks from Microsoft, without approval actually of the upper echelon, put out. Within a few days, it became this racist, sexist, awful agent because it had no limitations. T-A-Y, can look it up, had no limitations to what it would learn and pick up and imitate. So there were a few, you know, uh, entertaining, mean-spirited uh, people who just trained it to speak uh, very positively about Hitler and Mussolini and wow. all the oh. fascists of there and now times. Wow. And that needs to be recognized once as, well, we have to really be careful about not just having these learning machines out there because we have no control over what they'll learn. So that's a good thing, right? This was sort of a little science fiction because this thing was not prepared at all to live <laughs> even just for two, three days on the internet. And what Ex Machina, even though I hated the end of that movie, but that's a side point, what Ex Machina and, and other movies tell us is we can't just let these things go on their own and just watch what they're doing. Just like we wouldn't want to have that with our children or our friends or our colleagues. We don't let them just go in all directions. We set limits. And that's going back to the norms. That if we don't impose norms on them, expectations, well, yeah, then they will learn crazy things. Then they will do things that they have no idea are bad. They just optimize certain action patterns. We have very, very different evaluations. Yeah. So that really links it all together, that science fiction forces us. Obviously, Isaac Asimov uh, had that long ago, this idea that we need to impose rules. He thought about very abstract ones, but it's these thousands of small rules in everyday life that we have to put on these systems and then they can't build themselves or each other because we won't allow it. Mm -hmm. So that I think is a key learning experience from amazing science fiction. It's shocking and, and makes us worry, but it makes us, I think, take steps we need to take. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You talk about it. It's pushing that boundary of, of how we have to think about 
these different pieces of it. And I want to take it uh, just a, a tack here, right? Um, because you've done a lot of work on intentionality, right? It's a theme that has run throughout your research and, and understanding someone's intentions is important. And, and I want to take that back to this conversation that we're, you know, the, the, you talked about Tay, right? And, and so is there a difference? Because do we then look at Tay and say, well, it wasn't intentional. It was what it was taught. Or is that part embedded in how we then view it? Like if it becomes in saying you know, Hitler is wonderful, Mussolini is great. It, do we, do we put some intentionality upon that? Or is that totally separate because it is just that machine learning that we separate out and say, no, that's not part of it? Well, that particular one is so dumb that I think intentionality considerations aren't really our greatest worry. That something spews all this is bad enough. Yes. But yeah, with robots that move around on their own that may initiate a communication, even if it's not a full-blown conversation, that immediate inference of intentionality will be there. I mean, we see this with... Uh, triangles moving around, a uh, famous uh, study by Fritz Heider and Marianne Simmel in the 40s showing that people feel that triangles and squares move on their own and can even express emotions through their movement. It's very clear that from a very early age on, humans search for and detect mental states, intentionality, and as soon as that happens, the moral aspect comes in because some of those intentional actions can be good for me, others can be bad for me. Some can be good for the community, some can be bad for the community. And so I think that we very soon, if we go a little above mere, you know, simple primitive learning machines, we very soon face all of those questions. And mm -hmm. if we want moral capacities in a robot, what we expect is that it has morally appropriate community benefiting plans, goals, intentions. Now we could have a philosophical debate whether they are real goals, real intentions, but humans really don't care about the philosophy in this case. It's more like, well, is it going to hit me or not? Is it going to bring me my medication or not? Is it going to increase my pain medication because I'm really hurting or is it going to refuse? All of those questions are immediately there. And there's no way we could interact with even half sophisticated machines without all of those ways in which we deal with agents. Uh, they're not stones, they're not pieces of metal. They are meant and designed to be and are beginning to show some capability of being intentional agents. Yeah. Well, why is intentionality, so just backing this up, right? Intentionality, why is it important to understand some uh, intentionality within humans, not just robots? I mean, we're, we're talking robots here now, but just within humans. And, and is that, how does that relate to like theory of mind and various other aspects of, of how we interact with, with different people and how we think? Yeah, so the, the quick one on intentionality and theory of mind is, uh, <laughs> there are so many meanings of theory of mind, but yeah. I've, I've written a little bit about something like a, a tree of social cognition where there are very basic and, and simple capacities like detecting intentionality, just this moves on its own detecting goals, and then you move up. Theory of mind is sometimes identified with the capacity to actually infer beliefs and false beliefs in another mind. And then you go further up uh, and you can infer even complex multi-level mental states. But if we stay for a moment with intentionality, it is so critical because 
when we are in a social community, we need to distinguish between the goodwill and, and positive and uh, benevolent goals of our community members that we want to foster, that we can rely on, that we can trust, and the things that are ill-willed and destructive and bad for us. But we often also do things unintentionally. I would like to say something nice and it comes out as a, an insult. I didn't know that you're sensitive about this. So if you ignore that distinction, if you are equally angry at me if I say it intentionally and if I accidentally say it, that would be terrible for me, eventually for the entire community. Because we are these beings capable of planning, having goals, even long-term goals, and working towards them, and often in, uh, in benevolent ways, we have to realize that when reality doesn't work, when our minds aren't perfect, these outcomes are not always beneficial. But then the question is, do you punish people for the mere outcome? Or do you recognize, oh, what Kurt wanted to say was this. Let's just tell him that don't talk about this topic with Bertram. That's just not a good idea. He's sensitive about that. So now I prepare you for next time. And next time you can form an intention, don't talk about the, and then fill in the blank. And that I think is an incredible, powerful way of allowing communities to grow and deal with mistakes, with accidents, with unfortunate side effects of maybe good intentions and get better. And that I think is, is absolutely critical to build trust. Where do you think intentionality fits, uh, especially with regard to blame in our current world? Uh, not, 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 not to, I'm not trying to poke a bear here on political things specifically, but we're living in a world that is just more polarized. Uh, certainly here in the United States. And to what degree does intentionality in our words and our actions matter? Well, I think one of the dangers uh, is that we falsely interpret any kind of behavior, remark, uh, even just style of dressing or saying things as intentional. Now, we are actually generally pretty good at distinguishing intentional from unintentional behavior, especially when we observe somebody. But removed from all of that on the internet or in, in the indirect ways in which we often communicate, we may not know exactly, was it intentional or not? And if it was intentional, what did the person actually want to say? What did it want to do? So there's a, a real escalation uh, that's that's dangerous. If you have a little bit of dislike for somebody and then falsely interpret what they say or do as intentionally mean, as intentionally destructive, then you will hate them a little more. And then if you hate them a little more, you will more often assume that what they do or say is intentionally destructive. Right. And if you have no actual communication, if you have no actual relationship, no mutual interdependence, reliance, the, the need to work together, well, then there's no limit to this. Mm. And I think that that's the, the real challenge to step back and say, well, how do we bring those together? And there's really only one way that we have learned to deal with deep conflict, deep divides, somehow get them to communicate again. And even if it's just minimal communication, even if it's not full-blown conversation, just occasionally say something and maybe if they hear it, maybe if they listen, they hate me a little less. And to be honest, uh, yesterday's inauguration was that attempt. 
many people who didn't vote for Biden probably didn't see it. Mm -hmm. But some did. And maybe some heard about, oh, you know, that was actually some really nice stuff going on. And maybe they'll listen. Maybe they read an excerpt. And step by step, maybe there's a little bit of recovery of, you know, maybe they're not all bad, those Democrats. Maybe they're not all bad, those Republicans. It will take a long time. And it, it has to overcome deep forces of not only are we far away from each other, but we are tighter in our smallest circles. What people call the echo chamber and all of that, it's more comfortable. It's, it's protective to just talk with the ones that we like and agree with. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really interesting point is those circles are, are smaller, right? We're getting more insulated from, from others. And, and the divide seems to be happening sometimes in the political world that we're having is this, you know, urban versus rural kind of divide and various different other pieces. But are there, so, so if we, if it is this element of bringing people together, um, does that have to be in a face-to-face -face piece? Can it be online? Can it be in other areas? Have you seen any research that shows, you know, is it work better if we get people together and meet and once we can, right, in, in, in safety and, and doing that uh, in, in person? Or, or can it happen over Zoom or over phone calls or in other methodologies of, of trying to connect? Does that make sense? Yeah. I would say any of the above, start somewhere. And, uh, you know, that sort of one person says something, the other one maybe listens at some point, maybe later. That's a start, right? That's better than completely ignoring what the other person says and, and assuming the worst and, or inventing fictional things that the person never said or did. Then maybe build up a little and at some point maybe be in the same room with each other, actually maybe respect each other. You know, modeling, our politicians could have an, a huge impact if they start talking with each other and not just yelling at each other. Exactly that message, right? Then you move a little further and maybe you'll talk again with your neighbor who voted for the other side. And maybe you don't talk about politics. It wouldn't be such a great idea, but just talk about something you share in common. You know, this nice sunflower that, uh, you know, just popped up out of nowhere. Isn't that amazing? And so you work your way towards something that may become just a mutual acceptance. You don't even have much conversation. And in other cases, maybe you actually have a conversation and maybe you can try even to address some of the disagreements, but you don't have to go there. We don't have to all love each other and agree. No, it's just the minimum of respecting enough that you don't hate them, that you don't want to damage them. And look, we live in a society of strangers, 8 billion plus. I, don't, I can't even keep track of the numbers. With most people, we don't have any relationships. But then just leave them alone. Just don't, don't uh, hate them. Just think about the few that are really important to you in your small community. I think that that would be a start. That's the horrible effect of the otherwise amazing internet that we suddenly connect to people and, and can insult people and disagree and argue with people with whom we actually have normally no relationship. And that's not so great because we have evolved, again, biologically and culturally for life in small groups with whom we actually have relationships where we do things together and we mutually rely on each other. And that works pretty well because if you don't 
do well for me, I'm not going to do well for you. And that's not going to be good for all of us. Yeah. Well, we've talked with other people about this, uh, you know, the identity part. And we, we tend to put a lot of identity on that political part, but we have lots of other identity. We have, you know, I'm a I'm a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, right? And I'm sure there's lots of other Minnesota Timberwolves fans that are very different than me in a variety of other aspects, you know? But all of you suffer. <laughs> that, that is very true. We all, particularly this year right now. Um, but, but, you know, there are, there are a number of those different identity groups that we feel we belong to, you know, whether it be a church or a religious organization, whether it be the, the company you work for, whether it be the state that you live in, there are a number of those different pieces. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful from what you're, you're saying is that we can maybe focus in on some of those others that then we can have, start having those conversations and we can commiserate on how horrible the Timberwolves are this year. And I can get to have those conversations with those people and then that brings some more humanness to them. And I can, I go, oh, well, they're not that bad. You know, yeah. they might disagree on these, but they're they're actually pretty decent people on, on that, so. Absolutely, and we it may just require one shared identity. That, that could be enough for a small, non-hostile interaction. And that's all it takes, right? That you come away a little more positive than you were before. And I totally agree with you. We have so many identities. This is what modern life really has given to us as a gift or a curse, that we have numerous identities every day we get new ones. And I think we have to be aware of the choice we have to pick one or two and focus on that even for just a moment if it's shared with some other person. That actually would really be interesting to think about. You know, and people talk a lot about common ground and finding common ground, but what exactly is common ground? That's sometimes too difficult. No, we don't share a lot of history. We don't share a lot of background. We don't share a lot of values, attitudes, but hey, we might share a birthday or we, we might share the, the Timberwolf suffering, or we may have the same car, whatever. We are actually hugely responsive to that. It's one of the greatest uh, psychological manipulation in, in experiments to tell somebody that, oh, you shared this birthday with Tim. And I cannot help but actually be positively inclined towards you. And that's pretty amazing, right? If you find just one of those things, they can be actually trivial, to be honest. They don't have to be values and, and uh, all kinds of other things. Just one thing. Or, or if you meet, let's, let's just play this through. You meet somebody way somewhere on a vacation in, in, in Iceland. I love Iceland. And it's the only other person from your hometown. Do you care whether that's a Republican or a Democrat? No. You have a lot in common to talk about your hometown in this amazingly foreign place of Iceland. That's all that's going to be necessary. And on that basis, you may actually afterwards tolerate much more. Oh, we voted for the different person. Yeah, it's all right. Whatever. I, I assume that you had your reasons. Maybe you regret it now. But you know what? We, we don't have to talk about this. So there, there is some, yeah, there's some possibility that we will find kind of that minimal common ground. That would be already an improvement in many cases. Bertram, very early on in your research, you did some work on hope and optimism. And I was wondering if we could roll back the timetable and tell us about the differences between hope and optimism and what, what you discovered. 
Yeah, so the, the research actually started with that as a hypothesis. We thought uh, um, that hope and, and optimism are different, but we couldn't quite put our finger on what exactly the difference was. And uh, I should say Patty Brunings was a graduate student at the time at the University of Oregon. And she really started this project. And we then worked together on figuring out how to collect data, how to maybe test this hypothesis. And through multiple rounds of asking people about events that made them feel hopeful, events that made them feel optimistic, then giving those stories to other people and ask, did this person feel hope or did this person feel optimism? we found that there was actually a pretty reliable pattern, that optimism is when you have a fairly confident belief that something good is gonna happen, and there is some fair amount of influence you have on that. So I'm optimistic that I'm going to impress my guests with that shrimp dish that I've been looking at, because I am a pretty good cook and I roughly know how to handle that. And I got pretty good shrimp. So I have a fairly confident belief it's going to work and it's going to be me. I'm going to do it. But I might hope that my candidate wins. I can't be very confident. Uh, I have only so little influence. I might hope that the Timberwolves will win another game uh, this season. Well, no, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I may only hope that they're gonna win tonight or tomorrow. So this is this interesting, it's not a categorical difference. It's more like the more confident you are that it's actually gonna happen and the more influence you have on it, the more likely the state that you will be in is optimism. And optimism is a lighter state. It's a state where you then are hugely surprised if it doesn't happen. It's like, mm -hmm. what, what was going on? That, that's, that's terrible. Whereas in the case of hope, you are prepared that it's probably not going to happen. You would really like it to happen. It's very desirable, but it might not. And in part, it's because it was unlikely, in part because you couldn't really influence it very much. And it's important to have the ability to distinguish those states. So that was kind of the upshot of the research. And to this day, I think it's it's very helpful to think about that distinction in everyday occurrences, maybe sometimes in you know world events. Yeah. So so look, if 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 you're making the the shrimp dinner and, and that's the optimistic part of that, what if your wife was making it and you knew that she was a good cook and you knew you know she was a similar you know skill set as you? Is that then more hope or is it still optimism at that point? As I mentioned, after 25 years of marriage, I would definitely say optimistic. <laughs> but I mean, yes, you bring up a very good point. Yeah, the element of self being in there. And is that part of that component to make it an optimistic versus a hopeful outcome? Yeah. No, absolutely. You're right that there, there's one way in which we sometimes even overestimate our own capacities and, and overestimate the likelihood of the things that we really want. And so when somebody else has control, maybe we still are confident that it's going to happen because the, you know, the, the signs are good and the, the tools are there and the resources, but because you don't have an influence, because you have to rely on the other to take control, yes, I think probably your optimism will begin to crumble a little bit and it may turn into hope. At the same time, isn't it amazing if we can trust so much in other people's capacities and their goodwill 
that you actually are really optimistic and you might even be confident that uh, your spouse is going to do it, will do a great job. I think that actually is going back to a lot of our topics, that trust, that feeling of optimism rather than just sort of fearful hope, that makes a difference. And then your spouse will actually feel that trust and the confidence that you have and that will be a motivator. So that I think is really a, a nice way of thinking about it. How do we respond when others do the work that we hope will happen? Are we immediately going down with our optimism and, and at best hope maybe go into fear? Or are we able to actually keep being optimistic? I, I like that. Okay, now for the big question. What's on your playlist right now, Bertram? What are you listening to? What do you have a COVID playlist? We go back to Radiohead. We could go. We could absolutely start right there. Wow, so, uh, you know this is one of the hardest things. So, I I listen to so many different things. Uh, I listen to 20th century, 21st century classical music, avant-garde, free jazz. Uh, I listen to at least some rock music, definitely Radiohead. Um, I even go back to my youth and, and listen to The Who. But I basically try to seek out music that I haven't yet encountered that gives me a new feeling. So I can just look at like what did I just listen to? Something I bet you've never heard of. Anders Koff Accident. This is pretty wild avant-garde jazz. I listen to film music. One of the last ones I listened to is The Nick by a you know, pretty amazing film composer, Cliff Martinez. And I've been listening to Oren Evans, a fantastic jazz pianist. Uh, so you, you, I can't even, like I could go down and tell you 10 things. That's actually one of the things that I love about these new opportunities we have, uh, whether it's Pandora, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, you can just dive in. I don't have to you know, go to the store and hope that they have the CD that I'm looking for or wait for weeks to find it somewhere. I'm sad that those physical things are not there anymore. I always had this joy of unwrapping a CD or an album. But to expose myself to massively different music is such an opportunity. And I have to usually close the doors when I go into extremes because my wife is not quite as thrilled with truly avant-garde uh, classical music. She doesn't think it's music anymore. With avant-garde jazz, I was able to actually move her closer. We have this great Newport Jazz Festival, <clears throat> except in COVID times. And listening to avant-garde jazz live, actually I've noticed it with many people, makes them more open to it. They see the musicians, the joy, and then they are more tolerant of the more extreme, maybe dissonance and unpredictability. That's definitely what happened with my wife. And so we, we now listen together to music that maybe 10 years ago, she wouldn't have been that excited about. The Anderskopf uh, accident, is that an Austrian trio? I don't think it's Austrian. <laughs> an Austrian group? No, I don't think so. Uh, but to be honest, I've mostly listened to them. It was sort of a discovery and I've been listening. I haven't even read much about them, although I sometimes do when I uh, try to figure out well, where do they 
get this stuff from? Then I start uh, uh, reading about them. But yeah, I don't know more about them, to be honest. So uh, something to look up, our readers, uh, for you. Great. I'm sure Tim will look this up. I can tell by by oh. the look of his face. He is, he's, he's burning to figure this out. But <laughs> you bring up a really interesting piece about the, the fact that you have Spotify or Pandora, whatever it is right now, that kind of breaks down some of those friction points of trying to get new music in and exploring new music. And it's one of the things that I like about those as well. What I find, though, is that sometimes you need to actually go out and search for that as opposed to letting the algorithms because I, I i will do a playlist based on a song and then it'll play the very similar songs and i realize they're not going much out of that genre they're not really pushing the boundaries very much it's very much within that piece and so then i have to you know specifically go and search for that music although i i do agree with you that that's a lot easier now um, being able to just go out and type that in or into my phone or wherever it is uh, to to explore. But I mean, are you actively searching for those or are you letting that come to you? How are you how are you expanding your musical? Yeah, I use all kinds of tools. I mean, as you probably know, many of these devices have the sort of pushing the envelope setting so you can go to that and that sometimes uh, gets you somewhere. Uh, I, I look at what other people listen to who liked what I'm listening to. Obviously, this is, you know, as a social being, I rely on other people's uh, opinions and tastes. And sometimes uh, you don't agree, but sometimes you say, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I look at uh, the, the musicians in the particular group, the trio, especially in jazz, there's so much intermingling that if you like a, a particular music, then you say, so who's the pianist? Who's the drummer? Who's the bassist? Who's the trumpeter? Right. With whom have they played? And immediately you spread out. Classical, it's much harder to be honest. Also because classical, it doesn't reach the, the popularity. So there are fewer recordings, there are fewer concerts. It's so much harder to finance an orchestra. So there I have to work a little harder. And sometimes to be honest, uh, you find now classical composers working with filmmakers and producing amazing film music. So Johan Johansson, who unfortunately died a couple of years ago, really, it, is and was a classically trained composer who became famous with a few amazing musical scores, like Arrival, for example. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to butcher her name, Hildur Gothitsdottir. She is an Icelandic composer, uh, amazing classical composer. She did um, Chernobyl, the uh, HBO series, and several other ones. I really recommend looking at what she's done. So there, there's a new way for classical composers to actually be exposed to the world at large by being part of film and that music. Oh my God, that's so good. That's, that's high at the quality level, high to psychological impact level. That's a new sort of direction. That's why I said the Nick, I, I, I'm now trying out different film music. Not all of it is good, but as you said, all right, I'll listen into it for a few minutes if I didn't like it. I didn't spend $15 on a CD. I just moved to the next one. But I do pay in my, my monthly fee, absolutely. I think yeah. it's actually relatively cheap. For what you get, it's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it is. It's, it's amazingly amazing. cheap. Yeah, it is. And it's amazingly cheap for the musicians who are a part of it as yeah, well. Unfortunately, yeah. Do, do you listen to those film um, pieces watching the film, or is it just you're actually going out and finding the the musical scores to those films and listening to that um, on its own? Because I think there's a difference, and maybe you can talk about this. There's a difference between uh, hearing the music along with the visual aspects of, of the film that's going on and bring, you know, it's the emotional part that is tied with the visual part. Um, and I, and I, sometimes I wonder if you lose some of that when you're just hearing it. And sometimes I think there's probably even a difference is like you, you listen to the music more and you get the, some of the emotion from the music as opposed to seeing it on screen where it's more in the background and, and different yeah. pieces. Yeah. Just yeah, so I sometimes do before, during, and after. So it's before allows me to just listen to the music and, and uh, gauge its sort of uh, freestanding quality. And uh, some film scores do not measure up to that. Uh, you realize, okay, they were really tailored to the film, which is not by itself bad. It's just right. it's not going to be holding up that well as, as uh, you know, mere listening experience. But sometimes it does. And then when I watch the movie, I can actually recognize some of the music. It's not just totally in the background. And then I listen to it afterwards. And actually, one thing that's really amazing when you listen to it afterwards and you like the movie and you like the music, it gives these rich additional layers. And you you may not remember exactly the images, but you remember the way it felt. And so I, I had this recently with Tenet, which... Uh, despite some criticism, I think is an absolutely brilliant movie. And uh, unfortunately, the audio mix in the the uh, cinema release was pretty hard to deal with. But the new uh, streaming is is very good. I listened to this music multiple times, and we we just saw the movie uh, again a second time, and I could get the music this time even better. And I mean, it's still a, a, a brain twist to watch the movie. But that to me is really the sign of an excellent musical score, that it's not just there in the background, it can stand on its own and it enriches your experience. And I have this with definitely Johansson and Kuthistotia that uh, the music by itself, I can listen to it many times afterwards. Well, thinking of experimental music, I recently got turned on to some uh, Daniel Lanois work that he did with the Venetian Snares and uh, and the Parachute Club, and both of those are largely experimental music kinds of things. And so, I just want to pass those on. Uh, Daniel sure. Lanois, I mean, his work with Brian Eno and U two, and uh, you know the Neville Brothers, and you know he's got dozens of Grammys behind him on this, but he really, he really reaches the far accesses of what might be considered music with the parachute club and the Venetian snares. I got to tell you, that's pretty amazing stuff. All right. Well, I, I can check it out if it's true. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you an email if I disagree. <laughs> I'm only recommending it as a, as another way to, to, to find another, milestone to step toward and yeah. you may not like it. it you know may not may not work at all but that, yeah. that now this actually i have a a good friend with whom uh, i exchange musical discoveries and again we don't always find the other's discovery equally appealing but sometimes we do and we're big radiohead fans so during the pandemic we watched some of the live concerts that they released and yeah. uh, that's that's pretty awesome so yeah, yeah if you have friends with whom you can exchange these ideas i think that's terrific uh, last question. 
Do you listen to music when you work? Yes, and I have actually a system there. So I particularly like listening to music when I do statistical analysis, when uh, I do some sort of manipulations that don't require a lot of verbal thinking. I cannot listen to music when I read, and I can listen to some music when I revise my writing, but not when I write the original drafts. And the more extreme music requires less complexity uh, in my activities. So stats, even though it may be complex for some, there's also quite a bit of routine. And so there I can go pretty wild. And I think I, I both enjoy it, but sometimes it almost seems like part of my brain needs to be occupied so that the other part can focus more on whatever it needs to do. And I, I have no empirical evidence for that. And I'm not sure whether anybody has done any research, but I, I would be curious whether there is something to this. I've never been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Maybe that was just my self-diagnosis. But the idea that part of you needs to maybe occupy be occupied with something so that the other part can focus. I have that experience at least. And, and music definitely is one of those. That's fantastic. Uh, Melanie Brooks at Columbia is actually doing some work on this and we're, we're collecting some anecdotes uh, on our, on, on some of this uh, cool. for, and we, we continue to exchange ideas. Kurt, were you going to no, bring up? I was just going to say that, you know, we're, we're collecting some of these anecdotes for, for Melanie to, to, do some of this work. I don't know if she's specifically looking at, you know, the that aspect of it, but it is around work and music and how people are using it uh, in in that work sense. And 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 we've asked probably now well over a hundred different um, people, and and your your responses is uh, quite in line. It's this, cool. again, people can listen to work when they're doing the, these tasks that they feel are not really engaging that they don't have to think in words as you said or some people can listen to to music as long as it doesn't have lyrics or words in it that if it's as long as it's just musical um but yeah a lot of people are if i'm writing or if i'm doing anything like that it needs to be quiet um but you're yeah. not that right you, you you can you can listen to you could listen to radiohead while you're writing couldn't you i mean you yeah you, you do that I, uh, probably, I'm probably more in line where I can listen to music, but uh, to that point, I, if I'm writing, I need to have without lyrics because that just interferes. I start to think about, oh, there he's talking, you know, like, okay, computer or something. And I'm going, oh, yeah, there, no, not there. So, you know, the other thing that I noticed, and this is why uh, I'm going pretty wild sometimes with avant-garde is the unpredictability helps because if it's too predictable, my, my, my mind will follow that and will say, oh, this is where it's going, this is where it's going. I cannot listen to Mozart, even though I admire uh, my fellow uh, Austrian Wolfgang Amadeus, but uh, it's so predictable in, in, in a particular way and I've heard it too often. So I, I can't play it, this is impossible. I cannot do anything, even the simplest things, my mind will just follow that track. I actually can much more than fully focus, like in a concert. It's not my favorite music. I'm sort of more this modern uh, times guy. But if I listen to it with full intent, then I can follow all the details and the subtleties and appreciate them. But if I do other things, it's just all about predictability. That's 
quite wild. That's interesting because it, I'm the opposite where, where because it is that constant that I know it kind of just fades in as opposed to if it's all of a sudden it jars me, it, you, like an unexpected piece, then I have to pay attention to it. So it's, huh. it's, it's a different kind of way of, of processing that, I think. So yeah, I can go in the other extreme when it's ambient music, then yeah. you can think of it as either completely predictable or it, it's like beyond any prediction. It's yeah. just sort of landscape. And that's kind of calming sometimes. So I, I, I sometimes choose that. And that I sometimes actually can even write with if it's uh, truly almost like structured white noise, uh, <laughs> not too loud, just sort of physiologically maybe calming. So I, and I now realize, yeah, I sometimes do that. Interesting. Well, Bertrand, uh, thank you. This has been fascinating. We uh, are just very grateful for for you taking the time, spending some of your quality time with us and sharing some of your insights. And I'm sure our listeners will love it as well. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. I hadn't anticipated that we would talk so much about Radiohead and uh, cool music. So, all right. That's for an academic. That's a nice uh, contrast. I like that. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Bertram, have a free-flowing conversation, and whatever else comes into our robotic brains. Uh, did you like Did you like my robotic? You, people can't see this, but I'm doing the robot move. You're doing the robot with, with your hands, yeah. Yes. That's, um, that's going to play really well on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> They're going to get that instantly, I'm sure. I, well, it, you know, Mr. Roboto. There you go. Domo origato, Mr. Roboto. Yeah. yeah. The right. ruination of sticks. But. I would agree. I would agree with you on that. That yeah. was uh, when I just said, oh, I that feel was, sorry for you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So <laughs> well, let's get to our grooving. Uh, so how about if we start with uh, talking about this idea that if we're going to have relationships with robots, then we might as well build them with good faces and good etiquette. Yeah, good romantic relationships with those robots. Well, <laughs> like we're talking, you know, this is Valentine's Day week, right? <laughs> Her and ex machina. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that it's it was really important for him to point this out because our our relationship with robots just continues to grow all the time. And we don't need to take it for granted. We might as well actually be and we'll talk, we might talk about this later, but intentional is a word that just keeps coming back, right? But we, let's let's figure out what those robots need to look like and how they uh, how they're going to behave, so that we as humans can uh, enjoy them, you know, get get better use, make them more effective, so that our relationship with them can be more sort of appropriate to the specific situations, right? Well, think about this: robots are going to be doing a, a number of services and different aspects that are going to be involved with our life moving forward. And as as we talked about at the beginning, Alexi, Surrey, Google, all of those things are already doing that from an AI perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we have automatic driving cars, Tesla, we have um, robots working in factories, but we are going to be having these machines that are going to be doing everyday tasks. So there's already looking at, 
you know, machines to help out with people checking into hospitals and doing routine types of service elements. Think about having a robot with your uh, aging parent so that they can stay in their house for a longer time and they don't have to go into a nursing home. And so you need to be able to think about those interactions and the fact that if you have a robot that does not have some of these human factors that are important to us, we're less likely to interact with them in a meaningful way. So again, thinking about that that robot with your grandparent or your your, your parent who are in, you know, in that later stages of their lives, they won't work if we don't have those. So this is yeah. important stuff. And to that end, or, or in that direction, they also need to be very context specific, right? Yes. So, like the idea of of having just using the example of uh, a robot assisting your grandparents in some way, whether it's actually moving around the house or maybe it's just a, a voice activated kind of a thing that says, you know, that they could talk to to get get you on the on the phone with them. Um, through a voice command, but wherever that is, it needs to be contextually specific, not only for the job that they're doing, but where they're doing it, right? There's an aspect of uh, uh, having someone in South Carolina uh, who is using that robot. It might have an accent that might be more specific and relevant to someone in South Carolina than someone in New York City or someone in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And th- and and certainly, uh, if we go to different parts of the world, South Africa or India or or the UK, you know, th- having different, uh, even just different accents, could actually facilitate an easier relationship with the technology. Well, and and as we talked about, right, those facial features that are the key aspect that that Bertram is finding is that the face of the robot is really key. And and what does that face look like? And what are the attributes of that face that are going to be important? And are there context-specific, culturally-specific pieces that are going to require a uh, different, right? So that somebody is going to be, as you said, Portland, Oregon may have to be different than a robot in, in South Carolina. Specific and 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 Probably, maybe not within the United States so much, but maybe that's definitely going to happen if they're in Japan versus the U.S. versus South Africa versus somewhere else in the world. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And the, the, the other interesting piece about this, that we, there's lots of interesting pieces about this. One yeah. of the interesting pieces that I found with this is that once that robot, actually even before that robot has some of those human features, we have expectations about yeah. its mind and its capacities. And the more we change, so the robot itself is the same, but if we change how it, the robot looks, it changes our perception of what uh, it can do. So it changes those expectations that we have on it. And I think that is just fascinating. That plays beyond robots, right? That plays into how we have expectations about people by the way they look, by the way they dress, by the way they hold themselves. And those expectations influence then how we perceive their behavior. Does it match those expectations? Does it not match those expectations? Yeah. It also says that the better the robot designers can do at designing something that that has a human-like 
especially the face, but but also other qualities. Um, we're going to, you know, the, the more effective our relationship can be with them. And uh, pareidolia, you know, is something that, that we naturally have that we're going to go and look for the patterns. We're going to look for the for the things that that sort of line up. We're going to we're likely to see the face in the clouds because the pattern in the cloud looks like our like a human face. Then we are likely to see clouds in someone's face, right? It's it's it's, it's <laughs> faces in the clouds, not clouds in the faces. You know, couldn't we make a robot with a cloud face? Well, we could, but it wouldn't be very appealing. We wouldn't have a good relationship with it oh, unless man. that cloud happened to resemble a human face. <laughs> but it would be so puffy and so cute. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, like a little kitty cat face. Wouldn't that be, you know, a kitty cat face for the robot? You know, that would not, I'll tell you what, that would not work for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Kitty cat face would like me. Oh well, they would be angry at that face all the time. <laughs> well, but, which which goes to say, you could. I mean, we could create the faces of these robots to be anything, right? Mm -hmm. And and you have the typical standard perception of that robot face from the 1950s, and then you have the really uh, uh, lifelike thing from Terminator or whatever else, where you can't tell that it's a robot from a human, and. The, the reality is it's it's going to be somewhere in between for the, the near future, right? And yes. yeah. so I think Bertram's work is really looking at taking some of those aspects and the designers of those robots really saying, where do we put our energy and effort to make sure that the interface that we have with those robots is the best possible one? And I think that's really interesting. So- yeah. Uh, do you think about the impact of like a baby's face? And I go back to our episode on the babies in the burrow and this idea that just having paintings of baby faces on the shop walls uh, decrease vandalism. Yeah. And so if, if we build robots with the, the upper, again, it's the appropriate, the context relevant faces, I think we could have better relationships with them and uh, just get more stuff done, be more efficient in our lives. Well, you just brought up the the babies in the burrows and the, the whole evolutionary tract of humans where we pay significant attention to faces, partly because we need to identify, is that face a friendly face or is that face an angry face, right? Yeah. It is a evolutionary survival tactic. I can, we, we express a lot of emotion through our face, which is one of the interesting pieces about wearing a mask. And some of the people who are pushing against that are saying, look, I can't read, you know, you can't tell if you're smiling or not. And that's true. And it's very difficult for us because we like to be able to see that smile because usually a smile means you're a friendly person to me and you're not pissed off and angry and about ready to stab me. So therefore, a robot, if you're designing that, you have to take those considerations in. If you misdesign the robot so that the robot face uh, you know, has a has an angry look on it, I could I could assume that that might have a negative consequence in how we interact with that robot. So all right, have we have we uh, run this robot thing to death? Well, I, there's still more to talk about, but how about if we talk about intentionality? Are you were you intentional about? having us talk about intentionality actually not in that moment i was i was just really glad that you stopped pontificating and i could move on to another topic <laughs> <laughs> you know i pontificate way too much actually our listeners know that because they just fast forward through that part go, let's get to the important stuff that tim's talking about here we go uh, so okay all right um 
intentionality. What about intentionality? Well, it uh, we are looking for intentionality, right? We're going to attribute intentionality, whether it's there or not. So we might as well build it in such a way that uh, that works for us, right? I mean, I think what did uh, uh, I think he said that uh, we were talking about theory of mind. Yeah, uh, I, I think is 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 where that started, right? That that conversation started. Um, but he talked about this tree of social cognition, um, and that we it kind of starts with intentionality as to where that where that tree go, where where the where the trunk grows and where the branches go, um, is is largely based on our perceptions of intentionality, and uh, we need to distinguish between goodwill and and benevolent goals and ill will destructive goals. And mm-hmm. that, that makes a difference. You know, that, that raises that question of, about uh, morality of, is the act of someone stealing bread from a grocery store a bad thing in and of itself? Or is it possible that with someone's intention to say, I don't have any money to feed my family, so I went into the grocery store and stole bread? Do we, do we tend to look at that different? And in general, most people do tend to look at those things differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this goes back, I think, to the fundamental attribution error piece that oh, we've yeah. talked about in other episodes. The intentionality that we assign to others is different than the intentionality that we assign to ourselves, uh, which is really fascinating. And it comes back to one of our favorite elements too, which is Hanlon's razor, right? Never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity, uh, named after Robert J. Hanlon, (laughs) uh, which is again, I think through that, and I'm like going 95% of the time, it's it's usually just stupidity uh, on people, but, but we tend to fall into this intentionality trap that, ooh, they are doing this on purpose and there's a malice in there. Not, they're not benevolent. They are malicious in their actions. And we attribute that to people and, and thus that's a, a negative piece because we don't have the ability to get inside somebody else's mind to really understand what it is that they're thinking at that time. And we can only look at their behaviors and we have to make assumptions based upon those behaviors. Yeah, we talked to Andy Luttrell about two vegetarians, and when he said, uh, I, "I could be a vegetarian because I don't like the taste of meat," mm-hmm. you know that it actually dis- disagrees with me. And you could be a vegetarian because you're, you know, standing up for you know being uh, pro-social and responsible to the earth, and 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 this sort of thing. And we could be at each other's throats just because of the intentions that we have, the reasons, the moral foundations that we have for choosing to be vegetarians rather than looking at the fact that, hey, 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 we're both vegetarians. It's okay. But but you could also be there from the perspective if you're an outside person and looking at those two vegetarians, you you lump them together, even though their intentionality for- If you're out group, yes. If you're out group, you're looking at that and there are two very different reasons for being yeah. a vegetarian and yet you are grouping them together because their behavior is such, and which which goes into politics, which goes into a number of other factors that yeah. we tend to group cluster people together and we assign intentions based upon the group that they're in, which isn't always the case, which comes back to we are idiosyncratic and we really need to think through how we interpret somebody's behavior 
and making sure that we're not just uh, lumping them in with others. And I, I, it's just fascinating. The whole theory of mind piece is an area I need to research more because it just fascinates me. So It is, it is amazing. Uh, could I spend just a minute, could we spend just a minute actually talking about hope versus optimism? Because I thought this was a really, really important um, important thing. It's, I mean, it's a sword that I'd crusade on basically. Because, yeah. yeah, well, I hope we can talk about that. <laughs> I'm optimistic. We're going to talk about it. Because, oh, there you go. Because we have some control, right? So, so just to to reiterate, the idea of optimism is where we feel like we have some influence. Like there's some confidence in our belief that something is going to happen. Where hope it has less influence, or maybe even no influence, but it's this it's this hopeful feeling that something might happen uh, or not happen. Right, and and there's the level of of self control over some of these too. That was a part of this, right? Yes, yeah. Hope is often things outside that I can't influence, as you mentioned already. Optimism is typically I have some some say some influence as part of this. So there's a self identity yeah. component that goes with this. And the part that I liked about this in particular was the idea that if I'm if I'm optimistic about someone or someone else helping me with that, there's automatically an implied trust. Mm. And that's good for the fabric of humankind. Having a little bit more trust, investing just a little bit more trust in the relationship by by having a sense of optimism that collectively we have some control over this, I think is a really good thing. It's amazing, right? I mean, the, the the concept of, I think we talked to Bertram about the cooking the dinner with his wife or whatever it was and how good it was going to be and and trusting that his wife is a good cook and can do it um, versus him cooking it and doing it. Yeah. And so, th- th- again, it's a, it's a little semantic when you kind of think about hope and, and optimism in some ways, but there's a nice distinction there. And I think it's an important distinction as we are thinking about what we how we how we communicate to others and i think that's a that's a really key piece yeah. you know so the last thing tim i you know hope and optimism are great one of the interesting pieces that it it when bertram brought up the story about being in iceland and finding somebody from your hometown that whole idea it reminded me of a story from my in-laws who yeah. who actually did something very similar it wasn't even hometown. They were in France. I believe it was France. They met this couple. They had this wonderful time, like actually spending, going on some tours and other things with them. And they, 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 they became friends and they thought this was great. And they really bonded. They came back. They talked about how wonderful it was. They had made plans then to go visit these people. I think they lived in, I don't know, some North Carolina, South Carolina, somewhere like that. And, and your in-laws are in, in, in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. And so they did that like a half a year, a year later, sometime like that. <laughs> and they found out, yeah, we had absolutely nothing in common with this with this couple. It wow. was like, we really didn't get along wow. once we got back to the States. But when we were out of the States, it was like, we're both Americans. We both, you know, we like hot dogs and apple pies. But when we got in the States, it was like, oh, you're Republican. I'm Democrat. You live in the South. I live in the Midwest. Well, you have these beliefs. I have these beliefs that didn't come up when they, I'm, I'm extrapolating. They were we didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk with my, my in-laws about this, but I'm extrapolating yeah. and kind of making that judgment. But it was interesting because it was. But, uh, but the bigger point of 
we've they felt more American and more in tune when they were in a foreign country than they were back in their home country. Yeah. So the group that they felt they were part of that tribe was the American tribe. Yeah. And that was because they were not in America at that point. But once they came back into America and then they met with this, the the those the other couple who was part of their tribe before, it's still part of that American tribe, but that's less salient to them. And mm-hmm. so now the salient pieces are this, you know, age tribe, whatever they were, if they were different ages or the political tribe or the regional state tribe or the occupation tribe, whatever that uh, different smaller group is, became more salient. And they found out that, hey, yeah, we thought we were great people and you're still nice people, but I don't really have that much in common with you. <laughs> well, what about how much in common do we have about movie soundtracks? Mm. Can we just talk about that just for just a sec? Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. Dun, John, dun. Yeah. John Williams, Jaws. There it is. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Two notes, and and you knew what 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 soundtrack I was talking. I could about. name that tune in two notes, <laughs> <laughs> or or the Imperial March for Star Wars, or you know Jurassic the, Park, or yeah. Well, those yeah. are all John Williams ones, but yeah, well, that's, that's great. Yeah. yeah, but but yeah, you know, uh, there are lots of great soundtracks out there, and I think I thought it was just really cool that uh, Bertram used it as sort of a measure of how the quality of the compositions and the composer by how well the music that was in the film translated outside the film. Like yeah. it, it should enhance the experience of being in the film, but if it also stands up outside the film, I think that's extra special. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And he talked about the tenant soundtrack and I, I was like, going, Oh man, my son is like, loves the tenant soundtrack and he hasn't even seen the movie. He hasn't you seen know, the movie. He hasn't seen the movie, but we had to listen to the tenant soundtrack on our way up to go skiing, and, <laughs> you know, over Christmas break, and it, because it was like this is it. So he um, does, does. Does he? He wants to see the movie. It, yes, he does. He wants so, to see the movie. It's the same thing. Hamilton. We we got the soundtrack now. Hamilton. The soundtrack is the. It, it's you know. It's a the whole production. The basically. whole production basically. Yeah. But we listened to the soundtrack. We knew. My kids could recite the soundtrack before we ever went and saw the play. Wow. Um, and so I think there is something to that, right? There is something about the ability of a soundtrack to stand on its own outside of the play or the movie. And I'm I'm just fascinated by how those movie soundtracks, though, are influential in the emotions that they bring to a movie. And again, you know, we talked about Star Wars and we talked about Jaws. Think about both of those movies without a soundtrack. Jaws would not be Jaws. Any movie without a soundtrack. You know? It would be completely flat. Right. They call that a play. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, unless it's a musical, then... You well, well that is, you can't have a musical without a soundtrack, though. <laughs> I, I well, isn't that is a musical a, a type of play, or is a are they two separate things? I mean, what, what, how would you how would you do that? I I don't even where. How did this? How did we get here? Because <laughs> you said a movie without a soundtrack is a play, and then I said no, it's a sound. You know, there's a musical. And anyway, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, folks, we we digress. Um, yeah. 
Oh, what about do you listen to soundtracks? Uh, not not regularly. No, I I, yeah. I don't. I, I I so appreciate, especially in the movies. I want a good soundtrack. The difference between a John Williams composition in a movie like um, you know like like Jaws or Star Wars or Jurassic Park or something is fantastic. The 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 um, the soundtrack to and the score for Animal House. Mm. I remember uh, they, they. It's very intentional. It's very upright. It's very straight. The movie's a comedy, but the soundtrack is not slapstick and mm. sarcastic. It's very straight, and that to me adds to the the comedic tension of the film. Well, you think like Danny Elfman and his work with all of Tim Burton's movies, right? Or a lot exactly. of Tim Burton's movies and the, the, the darkness e- in those. Yeah. The emotion that that evokes that fits in with those is just really really powerful. And so, yeah, you're, you're right. I think there is uh, movies can be um, great. And then if they don't have the right soundtrack, they just become good and a good movie with a great soundtrack. I don't know if it becomes a great movie, but it definitely is enhanced. So something to research, something to research. Yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. Hang around. we got a bonus track coming up uh, with me actually in just a minute. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with our bonus track and groove idea for the week. In our conversation with Bertram, we focused on the psychological impact of building relationships with robots. It turns out that the etiquette and facial capabilities of robots have a big impact on how we perceive them and the sort of emotional and moral attributions we give to them too. Maybe more importantly, Bertram reminded us that robots need to be very context specific. The appearance and communication abilities of a robot that checks us into a doctor's office or needs to be very different from the robots that we use to assist us in making airline reservations, for instance. While that may be intuitive on one level, it highlights the remarkable complexity required in the design and manufacturing of those robots. Each one needs to be built for a specific purpose. There is no one size fits all for robots. And Bertram reminded us that it's difficult to imagine the robots will ever reach the complexity and flexibility of their human counterparts. Secondly, and this was later on in the conversation, we parsed out the differences between hope and optimism. This topic was particularly important to me as it seems that we're too often conflating the two. I'm referring to our casual conversation with each other, but as well as journalists in the media. To revisit the definitions, hope is something that we have when we lack confidence or influence on the outcome, and optimism exists where we might have some degree of influence over the outcome. We may want things to happen really badly, but we will be relinquished to being hopeful if we have no influence over the outcome. This week, we'd like to suggest the following groove idea for you. Getting back to St. Valentine's Day and showing your affections for someone you love, make sure you do this in a way that is focused on their wants and needs, their desires, their personality, their likes and preferences. Take the challenge to get out of yourself and bring the context of your proclamation of affection into the realm of your beloved. And let us know what clever things you come up with. So Groovers, This ends another episode of Behavioral Grooves. We thank you for listening and for supporting us. We hope that our conversation with Bertram helps you to go out this week and find your groove.